0: Welcome back to Fake News with Clarence and Jane. For this episode, we're joined by Ben Cowling, a professor at the School of Public Health at Hong Kong University. He talked to us about the COVID-19 situation in Hong Kong, as well as some of the key uncertainties we still have about the pandemic. This episode was recorded on 18th March via Zoom, everyone's new favorite place to hang out. So we hope you enjoy it as much as we did, and let us know what you think. So joining us today is Ben Cowling. He's a professor and co-director of the WHO Collaborating Center on Infectious Disease Epidemiology and Control at the School of Public Health in Hong Kong University. So thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Happy to join you. Uh,
0: so we're we, we uh, middle of March now, about three months into the, the epidemic. So I thought it'd be good to uh, get a sense of what the situation has been like in, in Hong Kong. So what for you have been the main epidemiological features and what control measures have been put in place in, in Hong Kong?
1: There's been a lot of concern in Hong Kong from the very beginning because we're on the front line right next to mainland China. When we first heard about the the new infections, it wasn't clear whether it was spreading. Um, People were alert, but then once we started to see cases being exported first in Thailand and then Japan and then to Hong Kong, there was very quickly a change in public perception to quite serious concern and a, a drastic change in people's behaviors, voluntary avoidance, so people staying at home more, people wearing masks when they go out on the street, and a lot of uh, searching for information about what was going on in China, and a lot of concern and worry about what might be gonna happen in Hong Kong. And one of the consequences of that was when the government refused to close the borders with China to reduce travel, travelers coming from China there was a strike among the healthcare workers which ultimately led to a change in the government policy where most of the border crossings with China were closed. Um, And then the consequence of that was that we saw a reduction in the number of cases of infection that came in from travellers from China after the travel reduction and that that reduce maybe the amount of seeding that we had in Hong Kong of infections into the local community. But in the last two weeks now, since early March, we've been having imported cases again. Between probably early February and the end of February, we hardly had any imported cases, maybe even none. And then we started seeing a rise in them again, perhaps even an exponential rise based on travelers from Europe and the US, and even in some cases, other parts of the world where there are epidemics ongoing. So that's gonna increase the pressure on um, the, the containment measures in Hong Kong, which so far have succeeded in preventing a local epidemic.
0: And the outbreak in Hong Kong obviously came uh, kind of on the back of uh, a period of uh, political unrest. Uh, so has that influenced the, the response to the epidemic or the public reaction in some way?
1: I think to some extent, so there's now, a, in some groups, there's a lack of trust in the government and that manifested in the strike with the healthcare workers um, because it was there's been unhappiness with the government for, for a while and healthcare workers felt that their views weren't being respected. So they went on strike and then uh, that did lead to a change in the government policies. And also in, in terms of face masks, the government had tried to ban the wearing of face masks in public last year. And the ban was ruled to be unconstitutional, but the government then appealed that ruling because they believed it was constitutional to ban the wearing of face masks in public. And that appeal is still um, undergoing consideration. And so when the government said that it's not necessary for people to wear face masks because there's no evidence that they're effective in the community, which is the same stance as many other governments around the world, including in Singapore, when they said that, but then at the same time said that people shouldn't wear face masks in the community because they're needed for healthcare workers. It sounded suspicious because on one hand, face masks are not effective, but on the other hand, face masks are critical equipment for healthcare workers. And if they work for healthcare workers, they should really work for people in the community. If it's an issue about not knowing how to wear them properly, then let's educate people on how to wear them properly if it's really just an issue of supplies then let's get more so the the message wasn't well received and now we have almost universal wearing of face masks in hong kong since early february so that's already six or seven weeks of everybody wearing face masks in public all the time um at the moment, we're in containment mode. So the most critical measures are the the mass use of testing of people, even with mild symptoms, to catch it, as many infected people as possible and then isolate them and quarantine them. But if we were to have a local epidemic, then use, universal use of face masks may also help to suppress transmission.
0: Yeah, so I think the communication on face masks has been quite complex, right? Because I think a lot of, de- a lot of it depends on the, on the context and your kind of... The, the risk. So obviously healthcare workers have a much higher risk. Uh, and potentially, I guess if you have uncontrolled community transmission, that that level of risk might increase the argument for using face masks. Sorry.
1: Yes. I mean, my, my, my view would be that if we had a unlimited supply or plentiful supply of cheap surgical masks, then any government would, would be recommending universal use of those face masks. Although the evidence base, uh, According to the evidence base, there's no evidence that face masks reduce transition in the community. Mm. To be frank, that's also true for hand hygiene, which is often the number one recommended intervention for coronavirus. So if we're saying that we, we won't do something because there's no evidence that it works, then we still recommend hand hygiene. Actually, we think hand hygiene works and we think face masks probably work, but we just don't have the supplies, unfortunately. And that's a, that's a lack of pandemic planning, perhaps, Uh, The only place in the world that I know that has thought about this is Taiwan, where they have a national stockpile of surgical masks for the whole population, Mm. their own supply lines, but they're not reliant on other countries to supply them with face masks. Mm.
0: And you mentioned some of the the challenges around communication. Have there been other challenges in dealing with the outbreak in in Hong Kong?
1: I think that the compliance with isolation and quarantine has been generally good. in the earlier days, the government in Hong Kong was not as strict about quarantine as it seems to be now. Um, but I think because of the, the worry that if containment fails, we'll have to take much more drastic measures, I can understand the, 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 the idea of trying really hard to contain as much as possible, so being very strict about isolation and quarantine. Mm. Um, we've even isolated asymptomatic cases And when you you isolate an asymptomatic case, it's not clear at what point they should be released. Um, We know that there's evidence of viral shedding that persists for a while, but it's not infectious virus. But we're certainly not testing people in the hospital to see whether the virus is infectious or not. Too difficult to do that on every case. So we just rely on the PCR test that tells us whether they're shedding virus or not. Don't know whether it's infectious or not. And that's using up valuable facilities in the hospital for someone who isn't even sick because they're asymptomatic. So at some point that may have to change if we have more cases.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but then obviously if there are asymptomatic people in the community who are spreading infection, then that's quite a concern.
0: Yeah. And in in Singapore now, in, in sort of recent days, we've begun to see an uptick in, in cases, uh, particularly from travelers or people returning from, from other countries in I think it's, you said it's the same in in Singapore. What do you think uh, this is going to, what impact do you think is going to have on the situation in Hong Kong? And do you think there's likely to be a change in strategy?
1: Yeah, we know that some, um, we know that some travellers will be missed, some infected travellers will be missed. So when we screen people coming in and we find some of it are infected, others will get through that are not. Now we have this 14-day quarantine policy for travelers from affected areas and it may be extended even to travelers from anywhere because some parts of the world we think there are epidemics although they haven't maybe detected them yet particularly for us some places in southeast asia and so if we have a 14 day quarantine for all arrivals that will help to, to slow down transmission in the community because those people if they are infected would then be taken to isolation before they have a chance to infect others. But actually they may be able to infect others in their home or in the community, even if they're under the home quarantine policy, because I mean, there's always a chance that, that something gets missed or or someone who's in home quarantine leaves for some re- leaves home for some reason, for maybe for an emergency. Mm-hmm. So I think the more important cases we have, the more chance that we're gonna have a, um, the starts of a local outbreak and then need to decide what action to take at that point to slow down transmission. And that's where the social distancing measures really come into play.
0: Yeah, so one thing we've seen in Singapore is that there's been quite a bit of communication trying to prepare the public for potentially a ramp up in, in activity, but also a kind of strengthening of social distancing measures. So Is that something that you're also seeing in Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, I think so. We've already got so some social in Hong Kong. We've got school closures. People are working at home. And there were, in in the month of February, a lot less people on the street than usual, although now it's mid-March and people have come out again that the streets are busier than they were. But if there was to be a surge in local infections, I think people would return to the, the February mode of most people staying at home most of the time. And that would be a kind of voluntary social distancing that slows down transmission. Schools are currently closed. We don't know if that's having a big effect. Um and then people are working at home as well, yeah,
0: yeah, so I guess one of the big differences is that in in Singapore, the schools have remained open. I, I guess the epidemic trajectory has been fairly similar in the in the two places so do do you have a sense for how much school closures might help, particularly given that there's currently some uncertainty around how much children contribute to transmission
1: yeah, my my current view is that children are just as likely as any. As adults to get infected, and there's some evidence to support that from Wuhan now. Uh, whether or not they spread infection efficiently, or even more than, than adults, which would be the case for flu. So for flu, we know children can drive epidemics. For coronavirus, maybe not. Maybe not so much, but, but I, I am fairly confident that if there's widespread community transmission of coronavirus, then closing schools would have an effect. Um, the size of the effect is unclear. And I know in the UK, the decision, uh, the, the current plan does not necessarily include school closures because it has a, a big economic and social impact. And in, in their analysis for the UK may not have a big effect on coronavirus transmission, which which is plausible but it will have some effect. In Hong Kong, we're quite experienced with closing schools. We've done it a number of times in other epidemics. And um, parents have the social support network from grandparents or from live-in domestic helpers to look after children, even if both parents are working full-time. And so Hong Kong is is one of the places in the world that can do school closures relatively more uh, feasibly whereas maybe in the UK or US it would be more difficult. Mm.
0: One of the arguments I've heard about, or, uh, against school closures is that if, um, say, elderly grandparents are involved in childcare for children who aren't in, in school, you might inadvertently increase transmission in the household to people who might be more susceptible. you have any views on that?
1: Yeah, so uh, we've been looking at what happens during the school closures, and what we've found so far is that most children just stay at home all the time in Hong Kong. And if they do go out, they might meet one or two friends, but they won't gather in large groups. So while it's true that they do uh, come into contact with their grandparents, if that's their caregivers, the children's chance of infection now is much lower than, um, than if they were in school. And they wouldn't, I think for the grandparents, the risk would most likely be lower in Hong Kong when schools are closed than when schools are open.
0: Okay. And in the long term, do you think we're going to see uh, an endemic state settling with this virus like we see for other coronaviruses?
1: I I think coronavirus is not going away. Hopefully we can get a vaccine. Hopefully some company or companies can come up with vaccines within a year or two. Uh, Until then, we're going to have the threat of an epidemic of coronavirus in every part of the world that hasn't had a big epidemic, because after they've had a big epidemic, they'll have what's called herd immunity. So they then don't need to worry about having another big epidemic because they had it and the population is having some degree of immunity. After we get a vaccine, we also don't need to worry anymore because we have immunity from the vaccine. But in the short term, that means for the next year or two Hong Kong, Singapore, and, and some other places are going to be concerned about the risk of a local epidemic and, and trying to minimize that risk as much as possible. I, would imagine that in Hong Kong and also in Singapore, containment will fail from time to time, that we will have local outbreaks from some unknown cases. At some point, the community may want to give up on containment because it's too economically disruptive. But I think given that we've seen what happened in Italy and what's happening in America and other countries in Europe, at the moment, there's still a lot of enthusiasm for continuing with with containment because we certainly don't want to be in in the position of people in northern italy um with with a lot of infections and a lot of people in hospital and a lot of people in intensive care but as 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 time goes on and uh, economic crunch approaches from the lack in productivity the lack in economic activity i think there's there's difficult decisions that governments will face about how how hard they're they're trying to stop the virus from spreading, and how much damage is being done to the economy by by those actions, which is really a, a difficult uh trade-off. That's that's the the, the difficult decisions that politicians are going to have to make about uh there's going to be a health impact of the pandemic, there's going to be an economic impact of the pandemic, and the health impact could be heavy, the economic impact could be heavy. Um, and maybe there's some fine-tuning about how much of each the, the country is willing to accept.
0: Yeah, some very sobering thoughts and I think lots so of difficult decisions ahead. Uh, so just to end with, uh, can you tell us one thing that's really resonated with you during this epidemic or something that you found unexpected or something that you've learned?
1: It's really surprising to me that we have a new respiratory virus for which children are not the main group that spread it. Because for almost all respiratory viruses we know about, they are spreading mostly children children get the most coughs and cold but for this coronavirus that doesn't seem to be the case they may be able to get infected but it doesn't seem like they drive epidemics we haven't seen school outbreaks we haven't seen lots of teachers getting sick with it and having a higher risk than than other groups in the the community and that's a little bit of a surprise Um, I do know that with SARS and MERS also children were not heavily affected but there's differences in the way that SARS and MERS spread often in hospitals where there's not so many children to start with, but this is a community spread of, of a new respiratory virus that doesn't seem predominantly driven by children. Um, I think we've, we've all understood the predictions on pandemic influenza and uh, the pandemic influenza plans. Um, And having been involved in some of those plans and being in discussions where, for example, travel restrictions were never considered, border closures were never really seriously considered because they'd be too economically disruptive. Now what we see is they actually are being done. And also the mantra in influenza pandemic plans is that containment is impossible for pandemic influenza. Mitigation is the right way to go and need to mitigate hard and mitigate early uh, in order to, to flatten the curve as much as possible. Actually, what we've seen now in Singapore and Hong Kong is that containment is possible of a pathogen that's more transmissible than influenza. So I think we're going to go back to those plans for pandemic influenza and perhaps decide that containment of pandemic influenza could be possible after all, but it needs concerted international effort to go for containment from a very early stage and hopefully not with the delays we've we've had with coronavirus, where for the first perhaps one or even more month when it was spreading that it wasn't recognized as a as a pandemic threat.
0: Okay, so with that, uh, thank you very much for your thoughts. It's been very informative talking to you. So thanks again for joining us.
1: Yeah, happy happy to talk again. All right. Oh, sorry, are we recording for the podcast now? No, we- no, no, no.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's not put that on the podcast. Let's not put that on the
0: podcast. <laughs>